0: And exploring and understanding what faith is, and how we can grow our faith, and how we can persevere. Uh, I thought what we would do through, through the summer is uh, spend some time just looking at examples of faith uh, from Scripture. And I was going to start with Moses, that's why our reading was from Moses, Not <laughs> Hebrews, but about Moses. And then as I got to thinking about it, I was like, well, I really want to give a context for Moses. So I need to go back a little bit earlier. And and the problem is when you start doing that, you end up at Adam and Eve, and you know you want to keep going through. So I stopped at Joseph. But that's where we're going to pick up today. We're going to actually, despite our reading earlier, uh, be in Genesis chapter 37. And I'm not going to... uh, I realize I'm not spending a lot of time or, or really any time looking at specific verses. Uh, we'll describe the story of Joseph because it's a long story and, uh, and we'll talk about it. But uh, I encourage you to read it uh, on your own, even if you're familiar with it. Go back and refresh uh, your, your memory. We typically like to think of our heroes as either good or bad. Um, these days, superhero movies are all the rage, right? Uh, I think the biggest Marvel is probably the biggest movie franchise that's around at the moment. Um, but but thinking of, of these heroes as good or bad uh, keeps life simple, doesn't it? Superman is good. Lex Luthor is bad. Okay, so... There you go, that's that's, life is simple. But every so often we encounter uh, a movie or a series that a character that challenges the way that we think about these heroes. Uh, So maybe you can think of some. Uh, uh, I I remember the old television show, uh, television series of Batman, right, with the kapow, you know, um, and uh, you you know that. but there, it was very clear. Batman and Robin were good. The people they hit were bad. <clears throat> okay. Life was simple. But what we've seen as you go through, as, as the movies have come out, um, and, and maybe you haven't kept up with them all, but Batman has become increasingly dark. And, and it becomes harder and harder to tell, is Batman good, or is he bad? In one of the more recent series. Is Loki good or is he bad, okay? Um, and, and so what about Iron Man? Is Iron Man likable or despicable? Okay. What sort of character is he? And then of course there's the age old question of is Batman even a real superhero or does he just have cool toys? But we'll leave that for another day. <coughs> And and so we recognize that life is rarely as simple, as good and bad. That, That although these characters are portrayed as one or the other, people are more complex than that. Life is more complex than that. But very often when we look at people, we do still characterize them that way. Did you ever tell your kids that person's a good influence, that person's a bad influence? <laughs> As though they can only possibly be one thing. But life can be more complicated. I own books on my, uh, or I own books. I've taken them off my shelf and I still own them. They were written by prominent church leaders to you know, large churches. Great material and content. uh, Very popular in in churches across the country. And then that leader gets, it's revealed that he's been sexually abusive to women around him. That he's had affairs. And it's like, well now what do I do with these books? Right? Did he suddenly forget, did everything he had to say about prayer suddenly become invalid? What about his books on evangelism uh, and and, sharing the gospel? Is that suddenly not true? Not pertinent? And so what should I do with them? Because if I keep them and they're up there on my shelf with his name on them and somebody walks in and goes, oh, I know that guy. He's the one that was in the headlines for having that affair and doing this and doing that. So life is complicated, isn't it? Can we be sure that their deviant behavior wouldn't seep out through the pages of their book? somehow? Do we know the timeline of if that book was written when that person was living the way they should and and they changed their behavior after they wrote that book? Can we really tell that? And so life, is complicated. Now, maybe that's an extreme example, but we know this about people close to us also. They're not all just good or bad. They? Um, maybe you can think back to your parents, and, and your parents were great, but there are things you want to do different. Right? There are things you want to do better than your parents, even if they were the best parents in the world. Um, How about your husband? I love my husband, but there's this thing that he does. Now, I know your wife is perfect. I'm not asking you to volunteer. But, but, okay, we won't go there. (coughs) Your wife is perfect. And so when we turn to the Bible... We need to make an effort to see the people whose stories are told there as whole people, not as caricatures who are either good or bad. They're they're people with all sorts of emotions, all sorts of motives, all sorts of influences and forces acting upon them. Today, I am going to work my way around to talking about Joseph whose story can be found beginning in Genesis 37. But I want to begin by talking about Joseph's great-grandparents. You see, whether we like it or not, each of us are a product of our family. And Genesis gives us a great example of how families uh, perpetuate their values, their behaviors, their habits. And so let's start with perhaps an obvious one when we think of these, the patriarchs, and that is playing favorites. And so I've listed the patriarchs up here, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and uh, I I hope you're familiar with them. If not, uh, I'm afraid I don't have time to explain it all. But Abraham is where the story begins, isn't it? And... Um, Abraham has two sons, by two wives, as happened back then, Abraham, or, or one wife and then the wife's uh, servant. And so, the firstborn son is Ishmael, born to the wife's servant. But Ishmael is not the favorite son. The favorite son is Isaac, born to the wife. Now, Isaac has two sons. They're twins, born to Rebekah. Isaac has a favorite son. The eldest twin, Esau, is Isaac's favorite. Rebekah has a favorite son. And it's not Esau. It's Isaac. Jacob. Jacob. Why am I looking at? I, I did this in my notes too. It's Jacob, right? And, uh, and then... As we come down, we follow the story of Jacob? And Jacob has 11 sons, right? That's a lot. And out of those, he has a favorite. Again, born to his favorite wife. And that favorite is Joseph, the youngest at the time he's born. And so there's the other 10, and then there's Joseph. And so we see this habit. Of having favorite children, having favorite sons, it's something that has gone from generation to generation. And it doesn't make for a healthy family. In fact, in fact, it leads to all sorts of conflict that, that comes to a head. Well, it came to a head with Jacob and, and Esau, uh, but it comes to a head also in a, a major way, with uh, Joseph. We are products. Of our family. Now, it would be bad enough if favoritism was the only behavior that was passed down from one generation to the next in, in this family. But we find an even more destructive trait. When it comes time for Isaac to die, he wants to pass on his blessing to his eldest son, his favorite son. And, and there were two things that were passed on uh, as an inheritance. One was the possessions. And Esau, of his own accord, had already traded that away. He said to Isaac, you can have that, because I'm about to die of hunger, and so I just need some of your stew, and uh, you can have the inheritance. And, and so Jacob said, thank you. That sounds like a fair trade. Here's the, here's the bowl of soup. All right? So that's taken care of. Well, Isaac finds out about this, but he still wants to give his eldest favorite son, something significant. And so one of the things that they pass on is this blessing. It's sort of like a, a spiritual headship over the family. And Isaac calls Esau in so that he can give him this blessing. Only Rebecca, his wife, and Jacob, her, her favorite son, conspire to trick, to deceive Isaac, whose eyesight is failing. And and so through this trickery, through this deception, Jacob steals the blessing that Isaac intended for Esau. So we see with Rebekah in that generation, we see this trickery, this deception beginning. But it wasn't only Rebekah. To ran on her side of the family. Because when we look at this, Rebecca deceives Isaac with Jacob. Jacob runs away. He flees for his life because Esau's not happy. And he runs to Rebecca's brother, uncle or cousin, Uncle Laban. Uncle Laban deceives Jacob. <laughs> okay, What goes around comes around. Uncle Laban says, you want to marry my beautiful daughter, Rachel? Absolutely. And then on the wedding night switches up and um, arranges for the less attractive Leah to be married to Jacob. Apparently enough layers of, of uh, veil will, will do that. Um, and so, Jacob marries Leah instead of Rachel. He goes back later, marries Rachel as well. Um, but we see this deception, not only with Rebecca, but now with her, her brother, is deceiving uh, Jacob. Well, Jacob says, "What's good for the goose is good for the gander." He comes up with a deal and he says, "Hey, how about we uh, take this? W- we split the flock. Okay, I'll take the spotted lambs. You take the lambs that don't have any sp- any spots." And uh, but he has a trick up his sleeve. He has a um, a scheme whereby he pr- the lambs produce more spotted sheep, more spotted lambs, and so. His flock is increasing more quickly at an unnatural rate than Laban's. And so we see this deception just multiplying here. And and then when Jacob now later in life has these 11 sons, um, we come to Genesis 37 and uh, Joseph is the favorite of the sons and the other 10 don't appreciate that. They don't appreciate that he's a favorite. They don't appreciate his attitude. And so they scheme. They, they, they recognize an opportunity. Joseph has come out in the field to find them, well away from home. And they say, this is our chance. Let's kill him. And, and ultimately, they don't kill him, but they sell him into slavery. Hardly any better. And then they go back home And just as Jacob had deceived his father with a piece of cloth that was rough and said, no, this is hairy Esau's skin that you're feeling, so they deceive Jacob now with a piece of cloth as they take Joseph's Technicolor dream coat and put blood on it from a sheep and say, we found Joseph's coat. He'd been torn apart by a wild animal. And so Joseph is... Uh, Jacob brother is deceived by his son and then as we get to the end of the story Joseph is in turn going to deceive his brothers back we'll get to this next week where he's he, he is in appearance an Egyptian they don't recognize him and he's quite happy to live like that and to go on like that and doesn't reveal who he is and he, he puts them through an emotional ringer of sending them home and bringing them back and sending them home, playing with them um, until ultimately he does reveal himself. But he he in turn deceives them. And so this this heritage of deception, of trickery, of one-upmanship, is something that continues through this family. This family is regarded as the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel, great men of faith. But their family had some warts. Where we come from influences who we are today. And I think it's important for us to recognize this about the people that we meet. Why do they act, respond, and think the way that they do? It's so easy for us to, to see someone who doesn't measure up to our behavioral expectations, doesn't Think the way we do, doesn't see the world the way we do, and we dismiss them, right? Because they're just, there's something wrong with them. They're they're irrational. Why would anyone do that? What's common, where's their common sense? But each of us is a reflection of where we come from. Now, often where we come from is mostly influenced by our home environment. When I do premarital counseling, one of the things we do is we, we sit down and we look at a couple of different factors and we just say, what were your parents like in this regard? Because those, those questions of what your parents were like, how'd they handle conflict? You know, were they confrontational or did they avoid it? Because if you're coming from two vastly different family situa- of origin in, in the way they handle conflict, That, in and of itself, could create conflict in the marriage. And and you haven't thought about it, you haven't had a lot of conflict because you've been single and able to do whatever you want, but all of a sudden you're living together with somebody else and you've got these different conflict management styles. And you think that the other person's totally illogical, irrational, but they're just doing what they've been trained to do for the first 20 years of their life. And so when people don't act the way that we think they should, it's not always because they're stupid. It's just because they come from a different place than we do. And so maybe you can think about it in, in your marriage. How many times have you or your spouse said something like, that's not how we did it in my family. Right? It could be the vacuuming. It could be, the, it could be anything. Right? That's not how we did it in my family, regardless of how long it's been since you were in your family, right? You were in your family 20 years, you've been out of your family for 40 years, and you still reference back to how you did things in your family. It's funny how that works. And they're the things that we're conscious of. And so it can be difficult to show patience with people while we learn their story. But it's the only way that we truly get to know those first impressions, the questions of why they're acting that way, that's, that's dangerous to make decisions. The only way to really get to know someone is to get to know their story. Joseph is born into this dysfunctional family environment. and The first thing we're told about him in uh, chapter 37 is that he has dreams. Okay. Well, the first thing is, in verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Uh, which is significant, but in verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while all your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us out, uh, rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said well some people are slow learners he had another dream that wasn't in there then he had another dream he told it to his brothers listen he said i had another dream this time the sun the moon and eleven very specific eleven stars were bowing down to me when he told his father as well as his brothers his father rebuked him and said what is this dream you had well your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you. You see, he didn't have to be a genius to know the significance of this dream, right? The sun, the moon, and 11 stars bow down to Joseph. Um, That's somebody with a high opinion of themselves. You see, we're not told here that God gave him this dream, are we? It was just a dream. Now, I think in that culture, they presumed that all dreams came from God. All dreams had sort of spiritual meaning. But uh, we're not told that that was from God, even though it it kind of plays out this way. But Joseph doesn't have a lot of tact. Um, Doesn't seem to to have much awareness of what's going on around him. And... uh, Maybe he didn't understand the competitive dynamics of his family. Or perhaps he did understand and was participating in them. Sharing these dreams with his brothers only increased their jealousy and hatred of him. Now, even if we understand the family dynamics, they don't become an excuse. There is nothing excuses the brother's betrayal of Joseph when later in the chapter they first intend to kill him, but while they're having lunch, before they actually kill him, um, they see traders heading towards Egypt. And they decide we can make money on at the same time, get rid of Joseph and make money. That's even better than killing him. And so they sell him into slavery. And, and, and nothing makes that. Nothing justifies that. There's nothing good or redemptive about that decision. There's, regardless of what was going on in the family. Now, when he gets to Egypt, Joseph doesn't regain his freedom. But he does, um, he, he is fortunate, blessed, if you will, to be purchased by a prominent Egyptian in the court of, from the court of Pharaoh. And so he is in a, uh, not in a sort of an abusive labor camp, but rather somebody who's... Um, a person of influence. And and Joseph is a good worker. Uh, He he performs well and is given a lot of responsibility. The first time that we actually encounter God in Joseph's story is in chapter 39 and verse 2. And it's after he's been sold into slavery. And it says, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when the master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. So he works his way up in, in the, the household in terms of respect and responsibility. And so it's almost a happy ending. But it's not the end. Um, there's more deception in Joseph's story. His master's wife deceives her husband. She she makes a move on Joseph. Joseph rejects her advances. And as an act of revenge, she accuses him of attempted rape. And quite appropriately, her husband then has Joseph thrown into prison. In chapter 40 and uh, verse 15, we see here as Joseph describes his um, situation to some other prisoners. He says, I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. I think Dungeon is the NIV, some might say, in this pit. And so we see this trajectory in Joseph's story. It begins in chapter 37 at the very top. Joseph is young, idealistic, and he has the whole world bowing down to him. That's his expectation for life. He's the favored son living in the promised land. And uh, he, he has only good things in store. But what we see in the story, the storytellers uh, use this, this word repeatedly as we go through. And the word is down. And, and we, when we look on a map, we see Israel to the north and Egypt to the south, and we think, oh yeah, they're traveling down. But they didn't have maps like we do. So when they're thinking down, they're thinking in terms of uh, vertical. So maybe they're thinking hill country down to sea level. But there's also um, a down, as just down isn't a good place to be. You see, in his dream, it was the family who was bowing down to Joseph. But then Joseph is thrown down into a pit. Rather than the heavens bowing to him, he's now under the earth. Joseph is sold down into Egypt, which, again, may have referenced altitude, but it may also just say his life is continuing to go down. Uh, Joseph, uh, Jacob, we're, we're told in, um, when he gets the news of, of Joseph's death uh, in verse thirty. 5 of of chapter 37 he says i will continue to mourn until i join my son or in "in the grave i think the um, more literal translation until i go down to the grave because that was their understanding of how things you went down when you died you went down to the grave down to sheol sheol and or the pit that was their picture of death and so that's where jacob says i'm going to go down And then at the very, uh, where we just read, uh, he's imprisoned in chapter 40 in what he describes as a dungeon or a pit. His life has had a couple of ups, but it's mostly been downs. And what we're seeing in this part of the story is this theme, biblical theme of exile. Joseph has been taken from the promised land, and he's been exiled in a sense. He's been sent to a foreign land. He's isolated. He's lost his freedom. And his you know, imprisoned with very little hope for the dreams that he had at the beginning. Um, his father thinks he's dead. No one's looking for him. It's about as low as he can go. And so we see this exile, this echo of, Eden here. Remember when God told Adam and Eve that they would die if they ate the fruit? And, and then what happened? They ate the fruit and they were sent into exile from the garden. You see, they didn't die in the instant but they began to die. Um, exile was the first movement of death. In Hebrew, thought, death and exile are two things that go very closely together. Exile is being separated, not just from the land, not just from the family, but also from God. To this point in the story, we're not told a whole lot about Joseph's character. At the start of the story, he really comes across as a bit of a brat. Um, you know, He's like, I'm better than everyone else. Look at my Technicolor dream coat. And, uh, and, and you can, I don't know, I can picture him strutting around in that for everyone to see on those special holidays, you know. Thanksgiving, oh, here comes Joseph in his dream coat, you know. Um, I wonder what Joseph's going to be wearing this Christmas. Oh, his dream coat, right. And so that kind of seems like his personality. But then when we get to the end of the story and, and he, he takes responsibility and he works hard and, in Potiphar's house and manages it well and successfully. He, he shows some integrity uh, when confronted by uh, Potiphar's wife. But what's interesting is that his integrity doesn't give him reward. In fact, his integrity is the reason he's in the dungeon in exile. The lowest point in his life is a direct consequence of demonstrating and practicing integrity before God. In verse 9 of uh, chapter 39, he says to, to his wife, he says, No one in this house, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against, not his master, sin against God? And so we see that there's the small glimmer of a relationship that Joseph has with God. Here's what I wonder. If you met Joseph in chapter 40, or at the end of chapter 39, as he's just been accused of rape and thrown into the dungeon, thrown into the pit. Egyptian jails were not known for their hospitality, and, uh, and you meet him at that point in life, would you say, here's a great leader who's faithful to God and an example for all of us to follow? Because I want you to think about your picture of who Joseph is. In fact, I've often heard Joseph compared to Jesus. I said, Joseph is sort of like a type of, of Jesus. Jesus. He's a precursor to Jesus. And, and so um, we, we think of him generally in glowing terms. But here, as we meet him, having just been thrown into prison, I don't think anyone's saying, oh yeah, you need to follow the example of Joseph. You see, this half of his story is a reminder that a life of faith doesn't look like one particular thing. A life of faith doesn't look like one particular thing. Joseph's family of origin set him on a path that he could never imagine. His faithfulness to God didn't grant him access to greater justice. In fact, it put him there in a place of injustice, an abuse of justice. And we're not told a lot about his relationship with God. But apparently even in this dysfunctional family he'd learned enough about God to have a moral code. To say no, if I take advantage of my this married woman then I'm responsible to God for that. That's a a standard before God. And, And so He was walking by faith. His family had instilled faith in him, had instilled knowledge of God in him, that he knew the land was promised to them, that Yahweh was the family God. There's no indication at this point that he's worshipping the gods of Egypt, although that would have been very easy to do. We're not really told anything about his worship practices, but it seems that he is guided by his knowledge, his memory of God and who Yahweh is was and what Yahweh had done for his family. We need to remember that when we encounter people who are living in the pits, who are feeling down, who are struggling, this doesn't mean that they're unfaithful to God. That we don't know their story. That we don't know where they've come from. And where they are, even though we may say, look at you down there at a difficult place in life, that may be several steps higher than they were three years ago. And we just don't know. And so there's a real importance for us as people of God to to love our neighbors, to care for our neighbors, to say, yeah, I want to learn your story. Because it's only then that I can know who you are. Because faith doesn't look the same. We can... sort of create this, this image that a person living by faith is going to be at a particular place on a Sunday morning. They're going to look a particular way. They're going to do particular things. But sometimes people living by faith look very different from our expectations. And we need to get to know them. And we'll see next week that if we're the ones, if we find ourselves in that dungeon if we find ourselves in that low place in life isolated treated unfairly, dreams crashing down around us people betraying there's a message here for us that says walking by faith means don't give up on God now I can't guarantee that there's gonna be good things around the next corner I don't know how many corners we'll have to go around before life gets to a place where we say, this is what I've been looking for. But don't give up on God. Because God didn't give up on Joseph when he was an arrogant brat, living in his father's house, enjoying his father's favor, walking around in his dream coat. God didn't give up on on Joseph when he was going to be killed by his brothers he didn't give up on joseph when he was sold into slavery he didn't give up on joseph when he was thrown into a slave's prison god never gives up on us and so walking by faith doesn't mean walking perfectly and and this bounces off last week's lesson if you missed it i encourage you Go back and watch it online. Listen to it on the podcast. But walking by faith doesn't mean walking perfectly. It means walking through life with our eyes fixed on God. And we'll see next week where that takes Joseph and where that can take us.